0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. If you need someone for your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy a fantastic conversation in this episode with Denver Frederick, who brings four decades of leadership in this sector, first as a CEO at several organizations and now as a coach and consultant and advisor to nonprofit CEOs all over the world. Uh, his experience is literally part of the cutting edge uh, of our business. Uh, he has led philanthropic efforts that benefited the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island he helped Michael J. Fox start the Parkinson's Foundation. And he's got a syndicated radio show now a podcast that features over a thousand interviews with nonprofit leaders and subject matter experts. Well, given his experience, it's no surprise that he has wonderful advice to offer you on a variety of topics, including the art and the science of corporate sponsorships. How has that evolved since the early days? of Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. We also talk about the advent of public-private partnerships within the nonprofit sector. How might you maximize those opportunities in your community? And finally, we talk about the work that Denver did to perfect the art of peer-to-peer fundraising. And literally, he'll tell you the story of how that first started, how it has evolved, and how it might impact your fundraising efforts right now. Great advice and takeaways throughout this episode, so make sure you check out the show notes, this episode number 196. Just go to the new podcast page at com, and you will find out all about the resources that Denver and I discuss, including how to find out more about the great work he's doing, how to listen to his podcast, which is called The Business of Giving, and find out more about his great new book, also titled The Business of Giving. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Denver Frederick. Denver, thank you for joining me on the path.
1: Thank you, Patton, for having me. It's a pleasure and it's an honor.
0: Well, no, I'm excited about this conversation. You have had a fantastic career in philanthropic leadership and literally have been on the cutting edge of many of the principles, particularly our fundraisers listening to, Uh, that you, you were there at the beginning. You were part of it and the inspiration and the execution of many of the things that many of us now take for granted. So excited to unpack that. But I want to talk about something you and I talked about before we started taping was the turnover issues. Our sector seems to be plagued. And you made the comment that like there's two open positions for every candidate. But what's the nature of this turnover issue? Is it always been this way in your experience? Or are there unique elements now that affect this issue?
1: Well, I don't think there's any question, and It's a lot more acute now than it used to be, but that really doesn't have anything to do with the sector per se. It's the way our society is right now. We have a lot of people who sort of think about gig jobs. We have, I believe, 1.7 openings for every job seeker. Uh, it's a very, very competitive marketplace. Um, as it relates to our sector, um, a couple things I would say. For fundraisers, um, you know, I often they feel like the last link of the chain and that the problems an organization may be having, they're the ones who are out there trying to solve that problem by bringing money in through the door. They sometimes feel like an ATM and don't feel as connected to the work as they otherwise might. So I think that that is a lot of pressure that they feel and perhaps not not the fulfillment that they would be hoping for. So I think it's important that organizations get their fundraisers more deeply engaged with the mission, stay connected to the mission. Smile Train would be an example where after a year there you go on something called the journey of smiles and you go somewhere around the world where they're doing their work and you really try to get it into their to their DNA. I think there are a couple of other things though that nonprofit organizations can do as it relates to this uh, staff and retention issue. One would be it's important to appeal to different parts of the value chain. If, in fact, that a nonprofit cannot be competitive financially with a private company, and if that private company is going to pay $50,000 more for a similar position, you don't do a lot of good by saying, well, we're going to close that to twenty-five dollars or $30,000, because if money is going to be their determinant they're going to be taking that higher paid position with a private company so you need to take those resources to the extent that they exist and find different things you can do to really invest in the person and their career sending them to conferences getting them an executive coach doing things where they feel that you care more about their success than even they do and it is that kind of relationship that i think helps build uh, the loyalty that nonprofit organizations are, are are striving to get.
0: Yeah, delighted to hear that. And, and investment in professional development may indeed be what helps keep someone or attract someone and keep someone, right, if we can't compete on salary. And I like, too, the, the reference you made to the ATM, which I know a lot of our fundraising friends do indeed feel that. So I guess Denver involving our fundraising friends at the strategic planning level involving them in the budget discussions as opposed to just having them kind of at the tail end of the process
1: yeah i i think you're, you're absolutely right number one it's going to make them better fundraisers number two they're going to have a better sense as to how what they do impacts the success of the organization sometimes they feel a little bit outside of it where they're bringing the money in but they cannot see exactly what that means as clearly as they might a couple of other things if i if i can mention them sure. um i think it's important that um, to the extent that you can patent, try to bring people in who've been touched by the cause. Um, And I know that's not always possible, but sometimes that it is. I'll give you an example of that. You know, There's an organization out in San Francisco called Fast Forward. It's one of the first nonprofit tech accelerators. And they provide seed capital and mezzanine capital to these organizations. Well, 84% of the people that they invest in have been touched by the cause of the organization they're starting. If you, if you can find people who have some connection, either directly or through a family member or a friend, they ain't going to jump for another ten dollars or $15,000. They're deeply invested. Another thing I would add to that is that it's important that nonprofits try to hire the right people and not the best people. And I know a lot of people in private industry who say, look, you know, we could get people here, let's say in Boston from Harvard or MIT or whatever, but you know what? They're not going to stay. So we look at some other schools and we have these people for a long, long time. So I do think there's a real distinction between the best person and the right person. And the final thing that I would add to that, Patton, um, do um, stay interviews. We do exit interviews and Mm -hmm. I don't even know what good exit interviews ever do. Right. But I always have looked at the very best people in my organization, not the people who are there for because of inertia, and they've been there for 20 years, but people who could get a job anywhere at any time. And I say, hey, Patton, why do you stay here? What is it? Nice. And you get some great insights. And you know, it's a little bit like individuals with StrengthFinder. We shouldn't be working so much on our weaknesses as much as we should be trying to accentuate our strengths. And I think organizations can learn from that. It, these are the reason people are staying. Really invest in that reason and make it a magnet to get other kind of pe- people like that to come to your organization.
0: It's Great advice, Denver. And you're right. We chase the exit interview, which may or may not yield any substantial information. Instead, we should be talking to the people that are still here. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Denver. We're going to go down your memory lane of some remarkable experiences you've had in philanthropic leadership. But First, tell our audience what are you doing now. Talk about all the work that's led up to this. Let's talk about what are you literally doing these days. Um,
1: You know, I do a lot of consulting. Um, I do I I consult primarily with um, nonprofit CEOs. I'm an executive coach, a certified executive coach. I am a communications coach, and I think if I have a singular passion that I work with these organizations on, it is workplace culture. I've always been fascinated by workplace culture from the first day I worked into the United Way back in the 1970s. Obviously, it's become even more important. And I've done now over 200 focus groups with nonprofit organizations speaking to their teams of seven to 10 people and all kinds of organizations uh, the Kennedy Center, American Heart Association, Donors Choose, Khan Academy, over 200. And I try to find out what is the secret of their workplace culture. And right. I work with organizations now doing the same type of uh, interviews via Zoom, but I try to help them really navigate this new world that we're living in of hybrid, which is a much broader extent, you know, uh, definition. That It's not one size fits all. So I do a lot of work along those lines. I do my podcast, so I do a lot of interviews and uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic to be quite honest with you, <laughs> but it never feels like work to me, you know?
0: Well, uh, that's a blessing that we all seek, right? If you feel good about every day you get up and and you get to help wonderful organizations. And of course, I'm delighted that our audience is, frankly, getting to know you if they don't already. And and through a number of channels, your podcast. And of course, we're going to talk about your new book, which I think is fantastic. And it's going to be another resource we can discuss. But um, as we go back now to the journey that got you here, and that, of course, leads to the experience you now share with others. Maybe we can hit some highlights, right? In terms of each of these stops that were most meaningful to you, and maybe drive some of the work you're doing now. And and I don't know. You want to start the Statue of Liberty? Where where do you want to start, Denver? Because I know from each experience, there's some unique elements we could talk about.
1: Well, let me start right before the Statue of Liberty, and then I'll get into that. I had worked at the United Way in the late 1970s, and I was about to leave Patton because that's what you did, you know, back then. You worked four or five years. I don't even know if the nonprofit sector had the panache that it has today uh what you would do is you would um work with a lot of corporate ceos and uh, you make calls on other corporate ceos and one of the guys i was working with and i was going to run it up a flagpole was the uh, chairman and ceo of nabisco and we were out making calls we were doing it in new jersey i was in his car and I said, okay, I've worked with him long enough. I think he thinks highly enough. I can bring up the idea. that I'm thinking about leaving the United Way, a nonprofit, and trying to get into the corporate world. And he said, you know, he'd be very happy to help me. But what we did in between calls, Patton, is we stopped at a supermarket because that's what the CEO of Nabisco did. And we went <laughs> inside the store. Right. And you know what they're doing? They're looking at to see whether the, sto- the shelves are placement. stocked, right, placement, right. you know, the end and all the rest of it. And we get back into the car, and he says, Look, I want to reiterate, I'd be very happy to help you. And he says, I just want to tell you a little bit about what I do in Nabisco. And he says, I couldn't be more proud of what we do. We um, hire a lot of people, we provide them a paycheck, they support their family, they send their kids to school. We're incredibly active in our communities. But he said, At the end of the day, you saw, you just saw what we do. We make Triscuits and Ritz crackers and Oreos. <laughs> and he said, before you leave the sector, just think about that in terms of the kind of life you want to have and the kind of impact you want to make. Wow! And that really, it was one of the more meaningful conversations I've ever had in my life. And then two years later, this great opportunity at the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation came along. So that's pretty much, I, I think if there was a seminal no- moment that sort of get, got me on this path, that, that would have
0: been it. That's fantastic. And and while he certainly could have recruited you directly into his world, uh, I, that's interesting. He gave you a cautionary tale instead.
1: He did. He he did. He was a he was a wonderful guy. Um, the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island was obviously my the big break of my career. Yep. It was a a, a difficult time to say the least, but two things that came from it which I thought were really seminal and had helped impact the sector here for the the next 40 years. The first was corporate sponsorship now up until this time and we're t- talking 1982 when the commission was formed lee iacocca was appointed by ronald reagan to head it up nobody had ever heard about corporate sponsorship actually not going to the philanthropic budget but the marketing budget right. of an organization and then taking that money from their marketing budget and having them take the cause and use it in their advertising and in their promotion and every every which way our first uh foray was with American Express. And it started on October 5th of 1983. And they had this proposition to their consumers that every time somebody used an American Express card between that day, October 5th, and the end of the year, they would give one penny to the Statue of Liberty Foundation. And uh, for every new issuance of a credit card, they would give $1 um, to to, uh, uh, Lady Liberty. turned out that in those nearly 90 days, we raised $1,733,000, but much more importantly than that, it put the cause on the map.
0: Yeah, awareness.
1: Yeah, from an American Express perspective, uh, they increased their credit card usage 29% over the previous year for that period, and their issuance of new credit cards for 45%. My goodness.
0: So it was a win-win, obviously, for them and you.
1: It was a win-win. It was the first time. Now it was it was it was contentious. There were people said, "My God, you're selling Lady Liberty. You're doing this on a market exclusive basis. This is you know this is horrible. You know what I mean? This should be something that everybody embraces." So there, you know, you always look back on those things, Pat, and you say, "Ah, smooth sailing all the way." It was anything but smooth sailing when it came to corporate sponsorship. But over time, it it got accepted and. You know, companies like Avon and American Airlines uh, the late great kodak um oh, all yeah. on board gave about five million dollars and really helped make that a, a real success
0: but it's fascinating and that's what's I'm so enjoying this conversation because you were there with the origin stories really of some of these concepts how would you describe the state of corporate sponsorship right now
1: I think it's very difficult and I think it's very yep. very very tough it's it's a cluttered marketplace I think that you have employees who basically have very strong opinions about the kind of things that you're going to sponsor or not sponsor, and you know, as we head perhaps into this recessionary time, we've run into some situations where people are beginning to say, "Do we really need to be spending our money on that when we have a lot of these internal problems?" So um, I think it's a, it's a far more challenging marketplace. I think you have to do it in a much more sophisticated way, but it is still a uh, You know, you have to be creative about it and you have to be able to stand out. But it's still, I think, a a great revenue stream and a great way for promotion and publicity and engagement. Um, You know, you really have to get the employees engaged. I don't think you had to do that so much back in the day. Yeah, good point. Did not have to be as engaged in the cause as they do now. So there have been a lot of changes that uh, have made it much more sophisticated and some ways more meaningful. We could sort of do one on one with American Express and those that followed. It's not. It's like nine oh one right now. You know, yeah, it's a point right. version. <laughs> the other thing about the statue was that it was the first public-private partnership. And I was uh, ask you, yeah, yeah. So, it, it, so that was um, people taking that for granted. But uh, up until this time, the private sector and philanthropy never stepped forward uh, to support the National Park Service, which is the Department of Interior. And we had a devil of a time, to a certain degree, in recruiting volunteers who were philosophically opposed. To the private sector, you know, allowing the federal government to abdicate their responsibility. So interesting times.
0: Yeah, I mean, any takeaways from that? I mean, again, the nature of public private partnerships, I mean, it, uh, you would, you would, in in retrospect, view that as a positive, I assume, or what do you take away from it as you look back? Oh, no,
1: you have to, you have to look at it as a positive. I mean, first of all, you know, when I look back, I just have these memories of uh, how challenging it sometimes was. Here we have Lady Liberty, and she's been sitting in New York Harbor. And um, her armature bars were actually designed by Eiffel a couple of years before he did the Eiffel Tower. Well, they now, after 100 years, have all corroded. And right. her sheathing has got holes in it and things. And we would do advertising to try to generate the several hundred million dollars we had to generate. And, and the Park Service would say, you can't run that. It's going to make us look bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, well, how are we going <laughs> to generate money? If and And it was really a need. No, I think public-private partnerships. Uh, this was a seminal moment. We've never looked back. The society has never looked back, and um, it's it also was sort of an antecedent to the blurring of lines between the private sector and the public sector and uh, and the philanthropic sector. So it was really not only a continuation of public-private; it was a continuation of this this healthy blurring of lines that we need to get coordinated efforts to really solve some of the bigger problems that we face as a society.
0: Well, you nailed it. And I was going to ask you just that. I think in terms of the skill set nonprofit leaders need these days, it seems to me they need to still be sensitive to that public-private relationship that exists in their community. Is that kind of something you see or want to see more of from nonprofit leaders trying to reach out across that public uh, partnership level?
1: yeah I I mean to be quite honest with you I think that and we'll talk about this a little bit later about scaling um sometimes it's really difficult to scale and to make a real dent into a problem unless you have a government partner you just can't do it you know we have a a strange thing in this sector here um which is if you have a nonprofit organization patent and you do really well and more and more people want to you know avail themselves of the incredible services you provide unlike a company who makes more money, this costs you more money. You know what I mean? It is more expensive and you have to do more philanthropy in order to be able to scale that organization to the size that you hope. Therefore, you need to have a government partner at right. some juncture if you're really going to take it that it's going to make a dent in the problem, just not serve more people, but really try to dissolve the problem and 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 fix it.
0: Yeah, well put. And in fact, I was Speaking on this podcast with one of the largest kind of foundations in the Carolinas, and despite their you know relatively large ability to invest, they said the same thing: that mm-hmm. hey, we, we have to have partnerships with our public municipalities uh, because we can't move the needle on some of the toughest issues that face us—healthcare, homelessness, things like that. And so it sounds like that's what you found early on, and would say still that's the case today. Very much so. All right, let's move on down your journey to the new york city marathon tell us denver about your experience there and and a very uh compelling element that came out of it
1: yeah it was just by happenstance so after i left the statue of liberty uh a guy by the name of armin hammer who was the chairman of the board and ceo of occidental petroleum and he was the president of the uh he was a chairman of the president's cancer fund and he wanted to cure cancer in his time and i became the ceo of that cancer organization so I remember this like it was yesterday, Pat, and I was taking the train in from New Jersey. I was reading USA Today, and I saw that the uh, founder and the guiding spirit of the New York City Marathon, a guy by the name of Fred Lebo, yeah. had been diagnosed with brain cancer. Well, I had just run the New York City Marathon a couple of years earlier, so I was pretty much steeped in those waters. And I had always had this idea about trying to get people to sponsor a run. It hadn't been done, at least up to my knowledge, it had never been done so i uh, i reached out to fred and uh just dating myself a little bit you know that was really difficult when you think about it i had to write a letter i had to type the letter i had to find an envelope i had to put a stamp on it you know, i had to go to the post Speaking of
0: communication channels oh right? my gosh
1: and then i had to wait three or four days and then i had to call up and say Does anybody know where this letter is <laughs> you know I mean, it just it takes us back but um eventually uh after uh, back and forth fred agreed to do it he did not want the new york city marathon to have anything take away from it and he thought that maybe a charitable element was going to do that yeah. but he was over at memorial sloan kettering he saw some of the kids over there he got back to me and said no we're gonna do it so we did it and it was uh you know give a dollar a mile for twenty six twenty. it was the first time it was ever done uh, Mercedes Benz was the uh, pace car. They donated a car. We had a couple of great marathoners be our chairman. We were in all the movie theaters, make a, a long story short. We raised a million and a half dollars and it absolutely added incredible value and meaning to the people who participated in the New York city marathon. So he was so taken by it that the next year when, uh, New York ran, he and I met with every race director in the world with our materials um you know it was Berlin, yeah. and it was tokyo and it was boston it was everybody and fred said look it doesn't have to be for cancer i want you to provide this option for a charity in your country or something along those lines depending on the country you were at and i would say patent within two or three years every single marathon in the world was doing something uh on behalf of charity so it was really Uh, To a large degree, there could have been some other things going on. You know, you never know. There was no internet back then. But it was really the beginning of peer-to-peer fundraising.
0: Well, you have a lot to be proud of. And that certainly should be chief among them. And you have to to feel good is what you've seen. And I guess now it's almost ubiquitous, right, in terms of this kind of element to many events, not just marathons. And, well, let me ask you that, Denver. What, as you view uh, now the state of peer-to-peer fundraising, obviously the technology is a little bit better than what you had, right, in terms of uh, the communication what do you think
1: um i i think like it is a little bit like corporate sponsorship it becomes more challenging and more difficult and you need to become more creative and engage people on a deeper and a more meaningful level um i would think that back uh, for the first 15 or 20 years of peer-to-peer if you're my friend Patton, and you ask me to sponsor it um i'm going to sponsor your run no matter what now i've done it with so many people There has to be a deeper level of engagement. So I just think it becomes more sophisticated and you have to really strategize more to make it, um, to make, to get the, you know, the, the, the outcome that you're looking to get. I I don't know. I think that some of these um, events have gone down in their take over time. I mean, this was even pre-COVID. They were not generating quite the revenue that they once uh, were. But like anything else, um, something along those lines will come to replace it. I mean, I think that, for instance, synchronous fundraising is becoming more popular compared to asynchronous fundraising. So if you're asking me to sponsor your run, what I'm doing is I'm going online and I'm sending in $26.20 for your marathon. You know, it's like leaving money off in an alley. Okay, nobody sees it. I'm not there with anybody doing it. So I'm finding that you need to get more communities and having people do things together as a team or a unit then the way you could just sort of do it in a in a in a sort of isolated capacity so i see these evolutions coming all the time
0: yeah well put and good advice and and not surprising that um you're not going to be able to just sit back and and encounter any of these opportunities without some creative thought mm-hmm. uh, and that's uh certainly a point worth reinforcing uh speaking of points And you've got a lot of good ones. And I think as you and I talked about this conversation beforehand, there are four headlines as you and I were discussing kind of key points of leadership that I want to get your feedback and input on. The first of them is systems change. So Denver, talk about what that is and and how that is relevant to a nonprofit leader listening right now. Yeah, that's
1: a good question. Um, You know, the best definition, patent that I've ever seen is systems change is it's the conditions that hold a problem in place. And um, we've been dealing in our sector very often with those outward manifestations in those systems, but it's really those conditions that hold that system in place that systems change is trying to get at. And the metaphor I use for systems change is the current of a river. So, if you have uh, a river with a, a side where there's really opportunities um, for people to thrive, and one where those opportunities do not exist, so many of our systems are uh, a current taking us to the wrong side of the river. And that is what those systems are. Now, a program is something that can come along and help fight that current. And right. therefore, you can swim against the current. And if it's not a particularly good program, you may stay in place. If it's a very good program, you might even swim to the right side of the river. But eventually that program is going to end. And that relentless current is going to continue. So you may end up downstream further than you otherwise might, but you're going to end up in the same place. And that is what a lot of our systems do and don't really give young people opportunities. So what you really need to do is you need to go upstream
0: Uh, uh, and try to
1: fix the current you know if you take a look at let's say public school education you know we have a system in this country which is essentially local uh education is is uh, funded by property taxes and that seems on the face of it okay that's the way it's done but then you stop and say wow you know if you're looking at some of our urban centers and the poor neighborhoods property values in those communities are not only low they've been artificially low because of redlining and other racist problems so you can put any kind of program in that school unless you're going to change the way school financing is done the system will always have those schools under resourced so you need to begin to start to think about what those issues are systems change in its very definition is collaborative systems change no organization can do it on them their own so you really need to to map out an ecosystem, and uh, and there's different elements to it. I think that you have to change what people assume to be true, and um, and I think another big one, Patton, is you really have to change um, the way donors think about outcomes. So the way we think about outcomes sometimes that if I'm in the business of trying to cure hunger, I'm going to have to go to a donor and say I felt uh, I, I fed. 800 more people this month than last month. That does not cure hunger. That does not do it at all. Yeah, it just fed some people. It's so a donors, symptom.
0: Yeah. it's a
1: symptom and it, it's, a, it's a band-aid, you right. know, it gets you, through, right. it gets you through February. But if you're really going to change it, you're going to have to have a much, much longer arc and you're going to have to have donors who understand that systems change is going to take some time.
0: I love your illustration of the river. And I wonder in terms of, a, all right, what do we do about it? If I'm a leader of an organization, you described that maybe we need to spend some strategic planning time talking about the ecosystem in which we operate or literally talking about what is upstream contributing to the issues we're trying to to help with or anything else you would suggest to help kind of move in the right direction?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it, I think has to do with collaboration and maybe um, in, in the private, just speaking to the philanthropic sector and not even bringing in the others for the moment, we're going to have to spend some time with, um, other organizations who are trying to solve the same problem we are because none of us can do it alone. So it's going to take a collaborative effort. And the way those collaborative efforts I find work best is not trying to figure out what we're going to do and what our goal is going to be. It really starts with spending time together and building relationships. And, um, and I think that's the way you're going to solve problems. Um, it's also going to cha- be a change of mindset. And let me give you a, a good example of this, if I can. Um, Community Solutions is right. an organization that's looking to solve homelessness. And their CEO is Roseanne Haggerty. And Community Solutions, as a matter of fact, was the organization that won the $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation. Wow. Um, So they really know how problem solving works. So what they did in terms of trying to solve uh, homelessness is that they did a housing first initiative where instead of trying to have people jump through hoops, they put them in houses and uh, without all the prerequisites to give them a home. And in a matter of a couple of years, they put 105,000 individuals into their own homes. But They also realized that the homeless population or the unhoused population in those communities had actually gone up despite their efforts. And they began an initiative called Built for Zero. And essentially, instead of counting up in terms of how many people we are getting housing for, they started counting down as to how many people are still homeless. And it changed the orientation from, hey, this is my organization, look what we've done, to are we solving the problem or is the problem getting worse? Because no matter what we tell the board of the number of additional people, if the problem is getting worse, we're not doing our job. And it's that flipping of the mindset that I think is gonna be a big, big piece of getting these leaders together around this idea of systems change to try to change upstream those currents that are really causing those these these challenges.
0: That's fantastic. In other words, not being just focused on the silo in which we operate, which we could claim success, but you're saying if the number's not going down, then doesn't matter how much good we're doing necessarily if we're not collaborating with others.
1: Yeah, it's becoming less uh, self-absorbed right. about what our organization has done and more absorbed with the problem and the people that are being served and if it's not working what else do we need to do and who else do we need to partner with to see that it's going to be done so it's going to be a while before you can change that because you know we're pretty conditioned as far as our organizations as to raising more money and helping more people and doing those things. But you need a much, much broader look in order to solve some of these vaccine problems.
0: Yeah. And again, it starts with education, right? And so we have to be willing to have that kind of honest communication and education with our constituents to tell them how we fit into this ecosystem, which ultimately maybe helps you know everybody get better. Um, it, it relates to the second headline, I believe, that I know, Denver, you've got some good thoughts on because you and I both talked to nonprofit leaders who uh, proud of what they're doing, they, maybe it's a newer nonprofit. They want to scale and scale mm. for impact. Um, talk about that. What what that means, and maybe some of the nuances of scaling for a nonprofit leader.
1: Well, you know that's a it's a tough one too. I think these are all tough. Scaling is one of the most difficult things to do. And uh, you know, I think it was Tolstoy said that you know all happy families you know are happy for the same reason, and all unhappy family families have a different reason for being unhappy <laughs> and that's right. somewhat true for scaling in terms of uh, when it scales, there's a similarity when it doesn't scale, there's a thousand different reasons. you know some of the reasons may be that the data ain't that good you know we see this uh, patent a lot with scientific studies yeah. that have great outcomes, but they can never replicate that scientific study. That's sometimes true with scaling as well. We have this pilot program but we can't do uh, we can't replicate it. Maybe the data wasn't that good to begin with. Sometimes it's um, because of the individual who was involved. You know, the, it worked so well in this uh, in this one place because of uh, Sarah. You know? unique, unique circumstance.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. right.
1: but but there's only one Sarah, so it can be difficult to, to scale talent. Um, but a couple things is that um, I, I would I, I've heard and I would advise. Number one is um, scale for impact, don't scale for size. It's something that people in our sector get intrinsically, but it's not something often that board members understand. They sometimes think when you're going to scale, it means bigger and more people. And uh, and that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is you'd love to be able to scale with one person, you know, yeah, um, right, less right. people, more impact. That's what you try, try to do. Second piece of advice I would have is to start small to grow big. And uh, a common mistake is that when people want to start an initiative, they start too large. You got to start small. You got to be nimble. You got to be cheap, you know, inexpensive. Nice, You're, right, not right. There. You're there to learn and otherwise you end up running something and you don't want to run an operation because you scale too large and you can't pivot as quickly as, as you otherwise might. A great technique for scaling. And I'll just cite one example is open source. Um. And uh Lava May would be just one of many, many organizations that have done that. Lava May is uh, based in San Francisco and they had this wonderful idea of converting uh buses into showers uh for the unhoused and homeless community right. and uh, did a whole bunch of wraparound services uh, around it. I mean what I mean what a wonderful dignified uplifting uh uh event activity. To try to help the people who are living on the street to get them a shower and stuff. And they've added haircuts and nails and things of that sort. So they scaled it to Los Angeles. But then they began to say, you know, we can only scale this so much. Right. So what they did is they took the keys to the kingdom and they made them open source and let anybody who was interested in doing this in their community, uh, do it in their community. So that's a that's a big one. a um, couple of others I'll mention is number one, data, scaling for data can be using data to scale can be important we tend to use data in the sector to measure what we've done and to show donors how their money was spent but spending a good deal of money in terms of getting information and data that you can share with policyholders and public officials and things of that sort education superhighway who i mentioned a moment ago spent 35 or 40 to 40 percent of their budget on getting data to get the kind of funding that they needed And uh, so that is important. It's a it's a different use of data. It's data ahead of time as opposed to data afterwards. And then of course the most obvious one is technology, and um, you really have to have technology at the center of your theory of change. A problem you sometimes find is finding too many organizations who take a V eight engine and they slap it onto a horse. Yeah, that ain't going to work. You know you have to have that central and that you really have to build your idea of scaling for impact around a technology platform.
0: That sounds like Denver, you step back and and your initial thought, many, I guess, would assume scaling in a traditional way. We're just going to do more than what we're currently doing now. But you're looking at it in in a different and perhaps more complex manner. Uh, But that's the only way you're going to scale in some cases. Yeah,
1: yeah, you have to to think larger in terms of what you're going to want to do. And um, a lot of it is Look, I, I speak to, to organizations to say, you know, we don't have a desire to take our proprietary information and share it with a whole bunch of other people, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other nonprofits, and, and and they'll they'll maintain patent. Hey, we're not do-gooders, but <laughs> we looked at we looked at our, our mission, and our mission was to cure homelessness. You know what? We can't we can't meet the mission you know? by ourselves by not. ourselves unless we invite everybody in. So, yes. it's that sense that really begins to open things up and get people to really try to solve the problems that we have.
0: Yeah, man, I love the open source concept that you referenced. I uh, visited Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, and they have, I think, taken a similar approach. Like, hey, on their website, lots of their kind of design and program information is available to anybody that wants mm-hmm. to do something in their community. And sounds like that's what you're advocating as well. Absolutely. Well, let's move to your third headline, Denver, and it seems straightforward at first, decision-making is the phrase, but talk about that because I think you believe there's some evolution along those lines as well.
1: Yeah, I I think that the the biggest evolution that I have witnessed over the last two or three years has been speed. So I've become a big advocate of uh, decision-making velocity. And I think that often nonprofit organizations never had the urgency that they should have had to solve these problems. We didn't have the urgency that Bloomingdale's had to get uh, you know sell jeans in the fourth quarter. You know it, <laughs> right. was, it was a little bit more layback, but this changed everything in terms of the last two or three years. We saw the crisis that we were in, and uh, people had to move quickly. Um, I remember the the CEO of the Coleman Foundation said that they made more decisions in the first year of COVID than they had in the previous fifteen years. That's and not surprising. The head of the, yep. Yeah, and the head of the American Cancer Society said, "Look, you just got used." to making decisions with 50% of the information. Uh, I never would used to do that before, but essentially things were moving at such a clip that you either did that or the decision was gonna be made for you anyway by events. And a distinction that you you probably are familiar with, but I think it's a helpful one for listeners if they haven't heard it, are two door decisions and one door decisions. And when I think about a two door decision, my mind or my my visual goes immediately to a restaurant And I think about the door to the kitchen and there's always two doors to the kitchen. There's one that lets the waiters and waitresses into the kitchen and the other that allows them to leave the kitchen because if there was one door, there'd be food and plates all over the place. (laughs) Right. Well, about 95% of our decisions are two door decisions. And by that, I mean, you go through the door into the kitchen, you see what's on the other side. And if you don't like what's on the other side, you immediately pivot and you go out the other door. And that is what more organizations need to do with those kinds of decisions. Make them quickly because two things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to create movement in the organization. It's going to help energize the organization. Boom, we're making decisions. Things are moving fast. And secondly, you're going to learn as opposed to just contemplating the decision and talking to more people um, after you've done it. The other kind of decisions are the more thoughtful decisions. And they're called one door decisions. And one door decisions. Um, you really got to give, you can get out of them, but they can cost you a lot. You know, you can get the wrong CEO in the organization. Well, that's not a forever situation, but it can be a lot of headaches and a lot of lost momentum. So we have too many leaders, I think, that take one door decision time in making two door decisions. That's and true. I think that that, that is, is good. The speed has helped a lot uh, during COVID to have people make make quicker decisions.
0: Yeah, I wonder, and I'm translating that, I guess, in a tactical manner, that many of us have operated kind of an annual planning, which, as I even say it, it sounds slow. And so would you suggest organizations maybe look at more 90-day sprints in terms of some of those two-door kind of decisions? Or are there other practical ways you see for us to accelerate what you believe might be too slow?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think when I, I, I talked to the CEO of the World Wildlife Fund, he said that's what we had done with our budget. It's 90 days we have to move really quickly things up yep, yep. too quickly we don't have the the luxury of, of taking you know that that amount of time and seeing where things are going to do i i'd also add to that that i thought eh, maybe this is just my own impression but i guess that's allowed on a, your podcast <laughs> Indeed. um i think that goals became less important and challenges and opportunities became more important interesting and i think it made leaders and their teams more engaged you know a goal is an artificial construct, and you kind of figure it out at the beginning of the year. And we're at eight million. We're going to go to ten million, and you know, it's just, it's just kind of a right.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: it's almost like when I used to try to study for a test, which was on Friday, and I tried to make pretend it was on Thursday. It worked <laughs> for like about ten minutes, you know. I, I know right. this stuff, Friday, but because of uh, what we've been through the last two or three years, challenges and opportunities became immediate. This is our challenge. What do we need to do? This is bottling everything up. We have to deal with it. Or, my goodness, look at this opportunity that's presented itself. So I have seen this leadership mindset shift from that. I don't want to call it artificial because there's a lot of thought that goes into it. But that artificial goal to a more real-time, nimble, seizing challenges and opportunities as they go along. A couple of other things I'll say about decisions if I can. Number one, um, define success. I go to places, you go to places, you ask 20 people what's your definition of success, you get 12 different, different answers. answers. Yep. You need one answer. It's got to be 10 words or less, and if you can define success and really define it clearly, um your decision making will that be that much easier because it's either taking us closer to success or it's not or there's some options here which is the one that takes us closer to that um definition of success. Um Second thing I would say is as a leader, don't tip your mitt um, in terms of how you feel about an issue. You want to get as broad a spectrum of input as you possibly can. So if I say that we're thinking about expanding our operations into North Carolina and I've spoken to the board about it, they're on board. Uh, Our consultants think it's a great idea and uh, donors like the idea. Hey, but team. I would never think of doing this without checking in with you first, you know? Right, right, right. Guess what? You're going to be right because um, you're the boss, not because you're right. So you need to get the input of your team on these things without them knowing clearly where you stand. Sometimes you have a culture that allows that. Sometimes you ask them before you let them know, you ask them to put it in writing. Those things, I think, help an awful lot. A couple of other things that I've seen in decision making time of day is really important. So we make different decisions early in the morning than we do later in the afternoon. If I, my doctor at 9:30, he's going to prescribe a regimen of exercise for me to do, but at 4:30 he's going to give me a pill, okay? <laughs> so we we have to think about our own decision making and then check them back again at a different time of day. One of the things that has always worked for a lot of leaders is they speak to their teams about probabilities. They don't ask them is it going to work or it's not going to work? A lot of times, if you're the boss, you're going to say, "Yeah, we're going to hit, a, we're going to hit our fundraising goal by the the end of the first quarter." Exactly. That and what's the chance of doing it? You're going to say, "Oh, I don't know, eighty five percent." Well, what's the other fifteen percent?
0: Yeah, right. Forces it. Yes,
1: it forces it from that black and white into the gray. And as you know, the gold is always in the gray. So there's a lot of things along those lines in decision making call it decision hygiene, uh, that allow you to make sounder and better decisions.
0: Yeah, fantastic Uh, takeaways at every level, uh, certainly part of the leadership uh, mantra that our uh, listeners need to consider. Uh, Power sharing is the fourth of your big four, Denver. And you you made a comment to me, uh, how do we assure the balance of power in the sector? Uh, What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I, I, there's there's a horrific uh, imbalance, and I think that we will work for a couple of years, and we will get that balance of power in the sector, and then look again and say, "Oh my God, what a feeble effort that was!" So, um, so I think it's going to take many, many uh, successive approximations. You know, this started a lot with um, with the relationship between the, the 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 donor and the nonprofit organization. And obviously the the clearest uh, manifestation of that is unrestricted giving. So um, because of COVID, a lot of organizations, uh, foundations, as an example, gave unrestricted giving to, to organizations because of the crises they were in. And with unrestricted giving, there's a beginning to see a change of the balance of power right there, where the organization now has some say in terms of what they're gonna do with the money that's been given to them as opposed to have to follow a prescribed formula that was written into a contract. It took a lot of time to get there. Kevin Starr, who was one of my favorite guests, he's a CEO of the Malago foundation said that if I know better what to do with the money than the nonprofit organization that I'm giving it to, maybe I shouldn't be giving them the money in the first place. So there is this sense of moving to unrestricted giving And I guess that's sort of an avenue into trust based philanthropy. You know, the way you and I would invest our money in a company is that we would buy the stock. You know, we're not prescribing them where we want our money to go. Exactly. So you have to look at nonprofit organizations and look at their track record and look at their leadership and look at their theory of change and say they know what to do with this. You know what I mean? Right. And give them the money and let them, again, deal with the challenges and opportunities because nobody could predict. What, what they're going to be and where they're going to go so um that's one way that you see the, the power changing the other uh it's a little too early to tell It has to do with multi-year grants and multi-year grants again puts more power into the hand of the nonprofit organization uh, you know there was a great uh, I wish I can remember it but I probably can't but I, I, I started it so I'll start but there's a great New Yorker cartoon and it's a you know the man and the wife and they're sitting in the um they're sitting in the living room. And their beleaguered dog comes into the living room and looks at them and says, I'm afraid I find myself in that awkward position of having to ask one of you for another biscuit. And, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I just said, Well, that's what it is. You know, we got our year grant, yes. we spent it, and you know what? We need another biscuit. And uh, <laughs> so, multi year is a way in which to change that. So, that's on the fundraising side. But even more pronounced, I think it has to do with the nonprofit organization and the people that they serve. So there's a lot over there as well.
0: Well, fantastic. And every one of the headlines there, as were the journey down memory lane of some of the experiences you've had, uh, Denver, for all of this, I'm grateful. I, I wonder, as a closing question to you before we talk about your book however um the state of nonprofit leadership you know for for those listening thinking about getting into the sector or advancing in the sector any final advice
1: you know I I think that um things are changing you know I think my advice that uh, that I have for almost everybody in any sector right now is that you really need to get more in touch with what your values are um And I think that's always been the true, true, Pat, and it's been true for you and true for I. But I don't think it really played as outsized a role as it did right now, because we don't know what things are going to look like. You know, I could have gone to medical school and you could have gone to law school and we would have evolutions through our career of changes that came up. But essentially, it was very much the same thing. For the way the world is working today, you don't even know what jobs or opportunities are going to exist. So as a young person, you really have to get in touch with your values and make every single decision you make based on those values. And and I think that is going to be the only thing that you can say right now, because I can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. And I I, I think it's really difficult. So you have to go back to things that are, are timeless, as opposed to you know, I would do this or I would do that because that could be relevant today. But, um, you know, you get chat GPT come along and you say, well, that turned out to be pretty rotten advice You know, right. because five or 10 years from now, it's um, completely, completely different. I do try to get people to think 10 years out. Wow. I think that what we tend to do is we tend to think about the future and we do it from the present moment. And when I think about the future from the present moment, I tend to extrapolate the present moment and think that things are not going to change that much. So if we're helping 5,000 people in three years, we're going to be helping 10,000 people. You need to get completely uh, cut off from the present moment and get yourself into a future state and then start to work backwards. And uh, so there's, there's devices that I think that people need to use and think about, but it's beyond what would have been my traditional advice about what I would advise a young nonprofit leader to do that I probably would have given five years ago, you know, Right, um, right. because I'm just uh, so aware as you are, that the world is changing at such a clip. You have to go to a, a different paradigm in order to be prepared for it.
0: Great advice. Great coaching. As I knew you would Denver. Thank you. The book is called the business of giving new best practices for nonprofit and philanthropic leaders in an uncertain world. I've got my copy, Denver. It's fantastic. Tell our listeners why they need to get a copy as well.
1: Um, I I think the title pretty much says it. Uh, Things are changing really fast. Uh, It was really inspired by leaders that I talked to off air who would ask me about these things. They were stuck in certain places and they wanted some new ideas. But more than that, Patton, They had some great ideas, but they needed validation for their ideas to be able to pursue them aggressively. And everybody has an insatiable curiosity as to what their counterparts are doing in dealing with similar uh, challenges that they're dealing with. And sometimes you get the answer but sometimes what you get even more is you get your own thinking stimulated by what somebody else did and you say well that would never work here but you know what would work here
0: you know <laughs> at least it, it got you going. thinking though right
1: yeah. so it's it's that kind of stimulus that i was i was i was trying to create and i try to make it simple uh, in terms of 20 digestible chapters on you know innovation and racial equity and some of the things that we talked about and uh you know new new initiatives gaining traction and uh, it was an awful lot of fun to to do and, uh, and, and sort of relearn myself and have an opportunity to listen to to some of the fabulous guests that I have had the good fortune of having on the program, as you have the same kind of experience. <laughs> Doing these podcasts are fun.
0: Indeed, and we meet wonderful people, and I certainly count you now in that on that list and delighted that you have shared Likewise. your wisdom with us. And, and um, again, we will link up the book and other resources you and I have discussed in the show notes for this episode. Um, Where, Denver, would you like folks to go to learn more about you and the great work you're doing?
1: Just denver-frederick.com would be pretty much everything that there. I have uh, copies of all the transcripts of everybody that I've ever done. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I get pretty deep into culture. So I've been to, um, you know, social finance and the Trevor Project and the World Food Program. And I talk to people about what they're doing within their organizations to try to get their arms around this new world that we're in. And uh, I I take excerpts of that, about 10, 12 minutes, and it could be valuable for your own organization to see what ideas others are putting into place to try to to navigate this new world of work that we're in. And um, so I, I think there's some real good takeaways that will be helpful for people.
0: Fantastic, delighted to lift it up as another resource and we'll encourage our listeners to do just that. Denver, for that and everything else you and I've discussed, thank you again for joining me on the path. It's
1: been my pleasure. And uh, when I'm down in Carolina, you're probably going to have a visitor, if it's okay.
0: <laughs> Count on it. Look forward to it. Thanks, thank Denver. Thank you very
1: much, and Appreciate it.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Denver as much as I did, and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your leadership journey, and perhaps help your nonprofit organization be more effective on the business of giving. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about Denver, his podcast, and his book, both titled The Business of Giving. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you will see the follow button, which links to all of the primary podcast platforms on which you may subscribe and you won't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. Of course, if you like this episode, click on the episodes button on the top of that same page and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for the work you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.